Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is March 5th, 2013. This is episode 1082 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about uh, why the economy is going to boom and then eventually bust. Why long term the dollar and the U.S. economy are toast but why you shouldn't be ready for it to happen tomorrow and how dangerous it can actually be if you uh, if you plan that way. And I have an interesting analogy to lead off the show with you on, on why that is. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, J.M. Bullion. You know, when, uh, when I let uh, a past sponsor that was a, kind of a, a supplier of silver and gold go, Uh, I wanted somebody in that niche. This is before TSP Mint and, and our ability to sell you guys silver. I really needed somebody when I was thinking about it that way. Like we didn't have anybody to recommend. I went out and well, I wanted to find a company that met a certain criteria. One, I wanted them to be cost competitive. I wanted someone that you could buy from and, and, and pay about the prices you would with a big, well-known silver house like Monex or Atmex. But two, I wanted a company where the owner was accessible if necessary. And in JM Bullion, I found that a small company... Uh, that takes care of its customers with competitive pricing. And when I, you know, when I brought TSP Mint on, people said, well, you know, what's that mean for JM Bullion? It doesn't mean anything. They're still a sponsor, guys. I look at it this way. I sell custom silver medallions, custom gold medallions, custom copper medallions at TSP Mint. Right now it's all silver, but that's the, that's the eventual product set. Um, JM Bullion sells silver eagles, pre-64 coins, uh, and, and mass-produced silver product. We're in different realms of the same business place. So if you want Silver Eagles, go to Jam Bullion. They're a great source with great pricing, and they even give MSB members a discount on larger orders. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. There's a lot of uh, eagerness right now to acquire more firearms, more ammunition, more firearms accessories because of concerns over pending legislation, and moreover because of the pending legislation creating a shortage. But you know what's not in shortage? Training. Um, I think if you have a good arsenal, if you have a good battery of firearms, you have what you need, where you really need to be making your investments anyway, are in two worlds, and that's ammunition and training. Those are the two most important things once you have the guns squared away. One of the best sources of training I can think of is Fortress Defense Consultants. If you check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Remember, if you can't travel to uh, Indiana where Fortress Defense Consultants actually is, But you can put together a small group of people that want to participate in training. Frank will come to you, set up a training at a range near you, and we'll even customize training to your needs. Check them out again, FortressDefense.com. Hey, have you gotten over to the uh, Walking to Freedom Forum yet? We'd love to see you there. We'd love to have your help in establishing the naughty list of the five to ten most oppressive states in the Union that we want to encourage people to relocate from, to states that are more liberty-oriented. Check it out today, Walking to Freedom. Dot com. Check out 13skills.com as well. I'm going to tell you a lot about shifts, massive shifts in the global and national economy today. Uh, as these shifts occur, uh, one of the biggest reasons they're occurring is because we are a nation that doesn't have the ability to do things, to make things, to create things anymore the way that we used to. And I, I don't mean the big high-level inventions. We're actually still pretty big innovators in the world at things like that. 
I'm talking about the average person being able to do something without calling a guy uh, or be able to feed themselves or be able to clothe themselves or be able to skin a deer. Um, check out 13skills.com and join us on a quest to acquire or vastly improve 13 skills in 2013. Uh, last but not least, do consider uh, checking out the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help uh, support this show at 18.3 cents an episode. You get uh, some exclusive content. You get discounts to over 30 vendors. And if you buy stuff in the self-sufficiency world, if you buy stuff in the gardening world, if you buy stuff uh, in the precious metals world, and you do that every year, the membership will pay for itself. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Email me before you join with subject uh, the subject line service discount and tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if you are prior service. And uh, I will uh, send you a special discount code to thank you for your service to our country, either at home or abroad. The place to send that email or any email for me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Private messages on forums and Facebooks and tweet, individual tweets and stuff like that do not work with me. I don't spend a lot of time with those things. Um, I do what I have to do to keep all of those uh, peripheral things running and keep the audience informed. You want to communicate with me? Don't use LinkedIn. Don't use some other new thing. Use email. Jack at the survival com. I check it every day, several times a day and respond to as much as I have the time and ability to do so. Okay. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and, uh, and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, I keep telling people the economy is going to boom and then bust. And I keep hearing everybody in the contrarian alternative media saying, nah, it's just dead. And in spite of the fact that the economy went to the edge of its deathbed in 2008, 2009, and, and really has come back a great deal and continues to improve from a number, I understand it's fake, okay? And anybody that's listening to this today that, that feels compelled to send me an email to tell me how the economy, even though it looks like it's in recovery, is fake, is wasting keystrokes. Uh, and if you were calling me on the phone, I tell you, you're puking verbal calories. I know this better than anyone else out there, that it's fake. I understand that it's fake, but fake is only as fake as the world perceives and is as advantageous to the rest of the world to accept. And right now, I've tried to explain this from the very beginning, It's in the world's best interest that the USS Titanic not go down. Okay? The US, USS USA Titanic. That, that, that we don't go down. The rest of the world is still tethered to us. And if our, our ship sinks, they go down too. In the final endgame, we will suck them down into the abyss with us a little bit, but they won't go. They won't be tethered. They'll just be in our wake. And, you know, when one ship goes down near another, it can kind of drag it in, but it doesn't sink. This is why they have to play the game with us for right now. China cannot afford the U.S. to go bankrupt tomorrow. They can't afford it yet. Uh, the Eurozone certainly can't. We're basically keeping them afloat right now. Um, none of the major developing economies can afford a broke U.S. right now. Russia can't afford us being broke. Um, The Chinese can't afford us being broke. The Japanese can't afford us being broke. The Japanese can't afford themselves right now. Uh, but India can't afford us being broke. Brazil can't afford us being broke. Um, the major developing economies in the world, even as they scramble toward 
financial independence from the petrol dollar, the U.S. dollar reserve currency, uh, as they scramble for that, they can't afford it yet. They're not positioned into a position where they can accept it happening yet. So they have no desire to actually hasten it yet. It's not that the U.S. hasn't uh, got any enemies. It hasn't. It isn't that we haven't made some people our enemies. It isn't that we haven't done some really dumb things financially to make people really wish that it wasn't this way. It's that you know, it's the old paradox or the old paradox of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So that's where the rest of the world is right now. Now the other school of thought with the economy is the economy goes up, the economy goes down. What do you mean the dollar can become worthless? You're nuts, you're crazy. That's tinfoil hack conspiracy talk. Everything will be just swell long term. And the reality is both of these views of we're doomed and we're doomed soon and there is no upside before the doom and everything will just be super and there'll be some little mini doom clouds in the way but overall we'll get by like we always have are both very, very dangerous, very, very, very dangerous stances to take right now. Here's the analogy I want to give you. Let's say that you or somebody that you love went to a doctor and the doctor said, I've got good news, I've got terrible news in the long term. You have a, a certain type of cancer that we can treat, but we cannot cure. Um, this cancer is almost always fatal in, in five to seven years. Um, if we do nothing, it's probably fatal in four. Um, if we wait four years to start treatment, it's probably fatal almost immediately. Uh, treating it at that point will like, actually accelerate it. There's some things we can do right now to treat it, and, and maybe instead of seven years, you can make ten. But this is a really rare, unique form of cancer, and, and we're not even sure. But we know we have to take some precautions and some uh, we have to do certain things with treatment. We need to start very, very soon, and we would like you to go speak to a, a whole group of different oncologists and decide on a treatment path that's best for you, okay? Now, you or that person that you love says, ah, oh, screw, I'm dead. I'm going to be dead within months. And you just take all your money and buy a party and a cruise around the world and go skydiving and do all the things that a person with, you know, let's say six months to live and 90 days quality of life might do and just say, I'm going to hug my kids more and I'm going to accept death. And I'm going to do all the things that I wanted to do in my life as fast as possible. And I'm not going to worry about spending all my money because I'm dead. Okay, That's how the people that are covering their eyes and their ears and just saying it's over, it's over, it's over are acting. And if you had a 5 to 10 year prognosis, if you had a 5 year prognosis and it was going to be 4 years even without treatment, you probably wouldn't behave that way. You, you probably would not behave that way. Maybe cancer is not the right disease for this. Maybe it's more something like a long-term degenerative disease that always ends really, really badly like Huntington's. If you want to know more about that, look up Huntington's disease and it might be a more accurate analogy. This would be a very unique cancer to fit my analogy. But it's not important that it be an accurate type of cancer. It's important that you get your head around the analogy. Okay, so that's, that's, that's stage one. Now, the other people 
with their view of the economy of everything will eventually work itself out. It always does. We're the greatest nation on God's green earth and we always will be and the, the dollar will always be king and we can just print more money if we need it and everybody else will just let us and everything's going to be fine and sure there'll be recessions and maybe even depressions but there'll always be recovery there'll always be the good old USA and we'll always be the leader in the world okay those are the people that get the diagnosis and say you know what no I don't I don't have cancer I'm not going to do anything I'm not going to talk to anybody I'm not going to examine anything. I'm just going to rock on with life like it always has been. For the next two or three, or if they're lucky, maybe four or five years, uh, their life will go on like normal. But when the cancer hits them, because they've made no preparations for it, they've put no treatment in it, they've nothing to strengthen their immune system, they've educated themselves in no way whatsoever about the condition that they have, when all of a sudden the sickness hits them, It's like a Mack truck. And these are the two camps that I see people bifurcating into in society today. It's over and it's over soon, or it'll never really be over. And I'm going to give you some sobering statistics today and some sobering realities about the cancer itself. Then I want to talk about the pre-cancer party, the, the four or five or maybe ten years of boom before... This comes and hits us on the other side. Now, I want to talk about how the cancer will then metastasize and how the patient, being the United States economy, will go critical. So one of the things that a lot of the people that are in the uh, we're dead next week camp keep saying is look at Walmart. Look at this, 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 this thing that was leaked by Walmart. Um, first of all, if you really believe that this was like an accidental leak that was never supposed to get out, And a Walmart executive said, this is a disaster. And somehow, unknowingly, that information got out on the street. Um, you're a fool if you think that was just a leak. If it was just an accident. If it, there was no purpose behind it. Look at the stock price of Walmart um, right after the leak came out. And look how long it took for the stock price to go back up. And there, I won't even explain it to you if you don't understand it. But there's the reason that leak occurred. To create a momentary dip in Walmart stock so that people could buy it. Um, the primary reasoning that we hear for um, this dip is that it's taking longer for people to get tax refunds this year. So the glut of February spending is becoming a glut of March spending. And if you know anything about accounting, it's done in quarters, and it doesn't matter if the glut's in February or March, as long as the numbers for quarter one are there, and Walmart pays out its expected 38 to $0.42 cent dividend per share on its stock. Then everything is once again right with the world and a buying opportunity was created for those that didn't believe the hype and hysteria. But there's a bigger lesson and this is the one that no one will tell you about, that no one talks about, and that frankly most of the talking heads in media do not even understand. Why would it be a disaster for sales to be down from what was expected in February by three or four or five or even seven percent. Why is it really that big of a disaster in our economy? I mean, let's say that you were running a business and um, your business had a elastic expense side. In other words, you only had to buy as much as you needed to sell. You had a very much of a just-in-time inventory, so you weren't sitting on a, a massive amount of inventory relative to your total sales. 
And um, so that meant that if your sales were down, so were your expense side on your on your uh, on your supply side. Let's say that you also had a an, a workforce that was highly elastic. Most of them were were part time employees. And that if you had less business, you simply had a few less employees per store, and overall you could offset it with that. Let's say you could do all of these things, and you had this elastic business specifically designed to rapidly expand and contract with market functionality, and you did a little bit less in you know February than you planned on. How is it a disaster in, in reality? And let's say that business still made billions of dollars in profit. Let's say that every one of your stores was still overflowing with shoppers. Let's say that there were still long lines at every register. Let's say that if you went to one of your stores at 11 o'clock at night on a, on a Friday night to, to pick something up, that there was still tons of people in there. Let's say that the parking lots in that store were still full. How in the hell, how in the hell is a, a, a not selling as much as you expected, not just unfortunate, not just not meeting our projections, a disaster. How is it a disaster? This is the underpinnings of the United States economy. Anything that's not growth is a disaster. Anything that's not growth is a disaster. You've you got to get that in your head right now. In spite of the fact that the leak was probably done purposefully by somebody that profited from it, because boy, what a short-term stock flip that was! You talk about somebody with, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars sitting around that could make you know five percent, ten percent on their money in a month by leaking. You know, no one would do such a thing, right? Okay, you get it, right? Hopefully, I don't have to explain the whole thing to you. But the guy that said it was a disaster probably really did. It's probably a disaster for him. It is because people are now like his 27 bosses, like office space, are going to want to know why they didn't meet their forecast. When I used to sell high tech equipment for Fluke Networks, and I had a forecast that represented a 25% growth in sales for my territory during a recession, and I came in with 20% growth, it was a disaster. It was a disaster because Danaher, the parent billion-dollar corporation, was pissed. It was a disaster because I didn't get my bonus. It was a disaster because my boss was pissed at me. It was a disaster because I was pissed at all the people that worked for, my, for me. It was a disaster because my boss's boss was pissed at him. But the reality was we had 20% growth instead of 25% growth in the middle of a recession in a high-tech sector, and we all kicked ass and we all made lots of money. But it was still a disaster because we now live in an economy with required growth not required profitability. Think about that. If you have a business and you have a really great year in 2012, better than you ever imagined it could be. Let's say it's a small business, a couple people and you, and you do a half a million dollars and you can pay your people really well and I mean, you just give bonuses out and You put a bunch of money away and you even put some money in a reserve fund to help the corporation out so the corporation has some money in case you hit hard times in the future. And then in 2013, you do $450,000. And you can still pay all your bills. You still have a, maybe your profit margin is actually higher. Maybe you've even made a bigger profit, total profit, but your overall sales are down. In our economy today, if you were on Wall Street, you'll get killed for that. 
doesn't matter that you're profitable. Because the underlying economy requires growth at all costs. The only way we can continue to service the debt is for there to be more money, more creation, more wages, more inflation, more everything every year. A 1% decline is not a recession, it's a depression. A recession is when we don't grow by anything but maybe a half a percent or 1%. But if we drop 2% or 3% in output, the world is over. The world is over. If the U.S.'s output with no fake money printing happened, just the Federal Reserve didn't print enough money to offset the, the, the loss in GDP, and the United States economy declined by 10%, the entire, entire world would financially implode. Because things would start to set off other things, like dominoes. Debt wouldn't be able to be paid here, so, that, so the only way that we can keep it running is to artificially fuel the machine. So we have a machine that we're told is like a windmill, but whenever the wind doesn't blow, we fire up a wind machine to blow the windmill. That's a good way to think about it. By the way, this, this gross domestic product is like, what is the total value of everything the U.S. does and produces? What's its monetary output? And the fake portion of it is what the Federal Reserve just sticks in, just shoves in through quantitative easing, through uh, buying our own debt, through anything like that. And historically, the percentage of GDP made up by the Federal Reserve itself has been in the neighborhood of 4% to 6%. So 4% to 6% of the total output of the United States in many years when we have reported great growth of 3% or 4% is, is 4% to 6%. You see how that works. The percentage of GDP made up by the Federal Reserve right now is in the neighborhood of 10%. So if you just took away the fake fuel, the wind machine blowing the windmill, the U.S. right now is in a decline because we're at like flat growth of like 0.1%. We're in a decline of 10% of GDP, which is an end to all things that we know in the current economy. So when you say things like, well, they shouldn't be printing money, if you want the system to function as it is right now without changing it, it is the only way that it can function. If you shut off the printing presses right now, the economy would literally implode globally. And then other nations would be forced to tether those cords as rapidly as possible. Instead of riding it out with us while they position themselves for the eventual day this happens anyway. Um, another thing we need to understand is that we have a demographic bomb in the United States on the way. And I'll get into it a little bit deeper. But basically to maintain the population, to just keep it where it is, uh, we need a replacement rate of a birth rate of about 2.1%. Uh, because some people don't, so if you think two would do it, but you need a point one because some people never have kids. The problems are multiple there, though, even with a 2.1. Okay, a 2.1 means that we're staying with the same population, but we're swinging the demographics. So even if we stay at 315 million people and the population doesn't go down, okay, the percentage of the population that are retired and drawing from those still working is growing, and nobody disputes that. So I'm just going to make that a fact. And you just have to accept it because every single source that you'll look up about that will tell you it's true. So we have that going on right now. The cost of Medicaid by 2017, Medicaid and Medicare, um, will be $1 trillion 
dollars annually. That's from the U.S. debt clock. So just for Medicare and Medicaid, a trillion dollars. The cost of Social Security by 2017 will be $1 trillion annually as well. Actually, both will be greater than a trillion dollars. So just Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are going to cost us a trillion dollars a year each. So $2 trillion annually just for those two programs. Interest payments on our debt. And this is a very hard thing to quantify because people lie about it. And it's, 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 it's hidden and it's twisted and you, you can't really get there. But the most honest estimate I can find is from the Congressional Budget Office, the people that do the accounting for Congress and generally underestimate things, by the way. But the interest payments on our debt by 2020 will be $800 billion. So what I'm telling you is somewhere around 2017 to 2020, the cost to run our government in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest payments on the debt, $2.8 trillion. $2.8 trillion just to run the government for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the interest payments on our debt. That's no Department of Defense. That's no Army, no Navy, no Air Force, no Coast Guard. I'm not saying we're not going to have them. I'm saying before we even get there, we're $2.8 trillion in. That's no Department of Homeland Security. Uh, that's no Department of Education. That's no, um, that's no department, uh, of, of many things. It's, that's no Bureau of Indian Affairs or Administration for Native Americans. That's, uh, and I know some of you guys are saying, well, maybe we don't need some of these departments. That's no DOL, no Department of Labor, no Labor Statistics Bureau, uh, no Department of Land Management. I'm on a list of A to Z U.S. government departments. I'm just giving you an idea. No Library of Congress, no Legal Services Department. Um, no radio-free Europe. Do we need that? I don't know. But my point is, these are all things that are actually part of the economy. They're part of that GDP number. This is fake money by borrowing and printing, pushed into the government, spent through public works. No risk management agency for the agriculture department. No rural business cooperative program. No rural development program. No rural housing service. No rural utilities. I'm not saying they're gone. I'm just giving you an idea of how many of these things there are. No transportation command center, no treasury department. Yeah, see, it's $2.8 trillion before we get to funding the treasury itself. No trustee program. No trustee program for the justice department. No tax court. We have to pay for the tax court. I mean, it's self-funding because it goes out and takes money away. But no veterans affairs department. Uh, no voice of America. No Vietnam Education Foundation. This, this list here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in the show notes today because it could make a a whole topic of discussion on its own. Just do we really need all this crap? But the point is we have it. No chief financial officers uh, council. No chief acquisition officers council. No chief human capital officers council. No chief information officers council. But there's a lot of crap in government. My point is that most of this stuff isn't going away. All this stuff kind of adds up into real money. And what I'm telling you is just... On four expenses alone, by around 2017, and this would be true if Mitt Romney had run the presidency. Don't don't just lay this at the feet of Barack Obama. All of these clowns are spending money we don't have. We're almost three trillion into it before we pay for any of the other components of government, including with the massive sequester. Let me put the sequester in uh, in the context for you today. Okay, so we've heard about how 
big a deal this sequester is, okay? Um, it's draconian. That's the word I've heard over and over, draconian. And even the Republicans, when they were saying, you know, we're not yielding on this, but, man, you guys need to, the Democrats need to work with us because this is, this is horrific. This is horrible. The only reason we ever agreed to this is because it was so horrible. Nobody believed it would ever happen. I mean, oh, my God. Okay, so the, the budget of the United States of America today, for all the crap I just told you about, plus the other four things that are going to be $2.8 trillion uh, alone by, 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 by 2017, 2020 in that range, uh, it, today is $3.8 trillion. We spent $3.8 trillion on the budget for 2013. $3.8 trillion. The sequester is $85 billion. $85 billion. Okay, this is the draconian cut. Let's take some zeros off. And if we take enough zeros off, it gets to be this. $38,000 is your budget to buy a new boat. And you have to reduce your budget by $850. There it is. That's that. that you just take enough zeros off and it just tells you the story. That's how small a piece of the budget we're talking about. And remember, the $85 billion cut includes the planned increase in the 2013 budget. So it's not $85 billion of $3.8 billion that was what we spent last year. It's we're growing the $3.8 billion and then cutting $3.8 trillion and cutting $85 billion out of it. So it's more like, well, last year we spent $36,000. And this year, we're going to spend $38,000, and we're going to take $850 off of the $38,000 and call it a cut. So now we're going to spend, you know, what are we going to spend? Uh, uh, why is this easy math? Probably because it's so ridiculous that we're even having a conversation. $37,150? $37,150. So we went from $36,000 to $37,150, and we call it a cut. It's draconian. This is the reality, and what? And I know some of you guys who work for DoD. I'm getting furloughed for 14 days without paying. It's not fair. You know what? You don't cut and have nothing happen. And this is the point: the fact that we're in this shit mess, and people will fight about numbers like and, and call it a disaster and hard and so. This tell me if you haven't heard this if you listen to the idiots in mainstream news, and you haven't heard Congress people say this on both sides of the aisle. It was so horrible that we never believed it would happen. That's why we agreed to it. We thought it would force a compromise. And that's what it really is. That tells you there is no political will to fix the problem. Even if it was mathematically possible at this point, and I don't believe that it is. I don't believe right now mathematically you can fix this mess under the current paradigm, under the current system. It is mathematically impossible. Even if it was... They won't do it if they can't handle this. And what does that federal debt number run up to by 2017? $22.6 trillion. Yep. 2017, this time next year, or this time in 20, this, this day in 2017 in the future, according to the usdebtclock.org, which has been proven to be very, very accurate, we will owe $22.6 trillion in total debt. But it's all going to be okay. Don't worry about it. That's what the experts tell you. 
And you know what their trump card always is? How many of these articles have I gotten in the past couple of months? That's just, it, it, it boggles my mind when I get them. Every expert, every guy with a, an, an economics PhD that ever gets interviewed by Forbes or CNBC or MSNBC or Fox News, that when it really comes down to it and they present all of this crap, probably, probably half of what I presented here, you know, when they present all of this, What does the expert always use as a trump card? It doesn't matter because the United States runs a fiat currency system and prints its own money. And we can always just print more, so we'll never be insolvent. This is their trump card. This is, this is their get out of jail free. This is their plan. It doesn't matter because we'll just make more. And you have to just look at history. And look at every place that somebody did this. And it always ends the same way. Complete obliteration of the economy. It, it always ends that way. And the only thing that has enabled the United States to get away with it as long as it has is this nation in many ways is the greatest nation that's ever existed on God's green earth. American exceptionalism is both a fantasy and a reality. And I know that I'm probably going to piss off everybody that has an opinion on this because it's either we're full of crap or we really are the greatest people that ever existed. And the reality is most things sometimes, you know, tend to exist somewhere in between. You are no better, my fellow Americans, you are no better as a human being than someone in China or Japan or the Philippines or Nigeria or Australia or the UK or South America, Central America, any continent you can think of that human beings have ever existed on. You are not intrinsically better as a human being than anybody. That is typical American exceptionalism is sold to us by the media and done in different ways by both the left and the right. And it is complete, total, 100% bullshit. You are not intrinsically better than anybody just because you're an American. And you are arrogant as hell. And I want to use the F word when I say arrogant as. Because it's so arrogant. Because we'll turn around and we'll say, when a person comes here through the front door as an immigrant and becomes an American, they're now part of... So would their, their intrinsic worth accelerate because they came here. There's an American exceptionalism around our system of capitalism. If we actually had a system of true free market capitalism, that would be true. We were closer than most nations, and it allowed us to have an exceptional developed economy and developed country and an exceptionally innovative society because we were closer. But today, we're very, very similar to most modern economies. They paint the marketing different. But there's not a lot of difference between the economy of the United States and the economy of the United Kingdom today. There's more socialism there, but they function pretty much the same way. So that's gone. It, it did exist, and it's gone. And it's dying. So that's BS too. What makes America exceptional is that when it comes to resources, we have more resources than just about any other nation in the world. We have ports on the Pacific, the Atlantic, and the Gulf. We were isolated from the largest conflicts that the world has ever seen by the oceans that give us disability with our ports. 
while people in the United Kingdom fighting World War I went to the edge of starvation with food rationing, we had to give up elastic underwear. Okay? We ate very well right through World War II. We ate pretty good during the Depression. People were just eating things they weren't accustomed to having to fall back and eat. Even with a large population of poor that really suffered during the Depression, those who didn't find themselves in that class did okay during the worst economic disaster in modern history anywhere in the world. Because we have so much wealth in our resources. We have more fertile farmland in spite of the fact that we're destroying it with modern agriculture. We have more water. We have uh, more climate variation giving us all different types of spectrum to work with. Think about it. What other nation boasts the natural resources and the resiliency thereof of the United States of America? And the answer is nobody. We are exceptional because of where our landmass is located. And there is value in that, and it's part of the hope that we have on the other side of this mess. And you can tell me, well, they have great farmland in Germany. Yeah, how many ports do they have? How many seaports do they have? You know? You know, well look at look at look at Argentina. It's got all the you know, look at Argentina. Okay. <laughs> no matter what you say. I'll show you something that we have in abundance that, that another nation doesn't. We have massive gold and silver reserves. In spite of the fact that we're told that we're a net importer of oil, and we are, we have massive oil reserves. We have Still to this day, we have massive oil reserves. We're about to become the largest producer of natural gas in the world. As you look at alternative energy, we have greater propensity for the production of wind energy in the United States than anywhere else in the world. If we wanted to do it, and we wanted to put up solar arrays, we could do that better than anybody else. It's the size, the climate, and the resources within the dimensions of our landmass that makes us an exceptional nation. And the insulation our location provided us during World War One and World War II. Our cities were not bombed. And you can't overlook what that did to allow us to continue while others had to rebuild. But the economic trump card is, it doesn't matter, we can print more money. Think about that as we go through the rest of today's show. Let's talk a little bit about the pre-cancer party. And I want to address the trump card, we can just print more money. Because when people wake up to that reality, they act like the first cancer patient. Well, I'm dead in a month, screw it. I'll go all in on silver and gold tomorrow morning, and then I'll be rich when it breaks. And, you know, you might need that money between now and the day that you actually, you know, really, like, have the cancer metastasize. And think of it more as someone you love has cancer than you because it's the economy that's dying, not you, the individual, right? Um, so that doesn't really work. And, and the reason it doesn't work is we intrinsically know that this is a preposterous statement. That we can always do this because we can print more money. So that knowledge can hurt us because we take that to mean, well, it can't last long. Well, it's lasted since 1913. It's devalued our dollar by about 98% during that period. And there is a point at which all of this accumulates into a critical mass and you go vertical. And once that vertical spike goes, it doesn't abate. It's over. It really is. But that 
point is not really based on how much the money's been devalued. It's how rapidly it's being devalued. So as long as the devaluation remains steady, this is how the Federal Reserve tries to manage things. It holds it in check to a degree. And as long as your currency is exchangeable, you can pretty much print money off the ass. You, you can print 85. So think about this. <laughs> this is this interesting. <laughs> All while we're, we're just having a, a conniption fit about cutting 85 billion out of the government. With QE infinity, the Fed is creating 85 billion a month from now until it works. So they're going to cut 85 billion here, but put it back in every month, 12 fold. And they've been doing it. That's interesting. Those two numbers are so similar. So, but you can get away with that. You can print money. You can buy toxic assets for new money and put it into the economy and float it around. And you can spur business and you can develop commerce and you can put it out in small business loans and you can put it into seed functionality and you can do all different types of things to spur a fake economy. And it will work as long as your currency is exchangeable, as long as people will take it. And it will work at the international level as long as China can buy a U.S. bond, hold it as a reserve, use it to do all the things that they would need to use their own resources for as a leverage point, take their resources and lay them up in something like gold or silver or agricultural land or trade agreements. And they will keep working with the U.S. dollar as long as that exchangeability exists. Everybody will play the game with you. Everybody will take your monopoly money as long as the game is monopoly. When the game changes, the monopoly currency doesn't work in the game of life. It's another way to look at it. And the game is going to change. But for now, it works. And if you don't acknowledge that for now it works, you become the guy that throws a party and thinks he's dead in six months. And six months later is broke and realizes he has some life to get through for a while yet. And actually, the illness is going to hit him a lot harder than if you took a sane, rational approach to it. And accepted that it could be coming in six months or six years or 60 years. Really doesn't know. Right? It's the way we live life. We don't live life like monopoly. We live life like life. The next thing that's going to cause the pre-cancer party, I've talked about it a bit, but if you research it, you will find that flat out the coming natural gas boom is real. There is going to be more natural gas being produced by this country than, than the rest of the world almost. It, it's staggering. How much nat gas we're going to produce. And nothing spurs an economy like cheap energy. I, I'm telling you, you will see whole fleets of natural gas vehicles coming out. It won't be a, a fringe technology, an alternative technology. It will be, come very mainstream very, very quickly in the coming five years. Maybe six or seven. But it will come. It's going to happen. And this natural gas is going to produce abundant cheap electricity on top of things. And the alternative energy markets will continue to expand and evolve as well. The, the natural gas energy boom will be used to fuel a lot more alternative energy. What, the biggest reason people don't have solar panels is they're expensive. The cheaper the energy to produce them with, the cheaper the, the, the final product is. And it will drive prices down on tremendous numbers of products and technologies by reducing the energy costs. You'll probably pay the same for your electric bill. But the factories won't pay the same for theirs. Because the government's not going to give up your money because when you pay the electrical company, you pay a tax and they get their money. 
Okay, So energy costs won't really go down at the consumer level, but they will go down at the producer level, and that will drive down the cost of consumer goods. All right? Um, the coming medical care disaster, there is no doubt Medicaid, Medicare, and Obamacare are disasters of apocalyptic uh, nature when they finally rear their head and we realize we can't afford them. And we'll, we'll realize it when so many people have come to depend on them. That's, that's the biggest thing is there will be this massive move over to government health care. It's going to happen. The whole system was designed to create it. In fact, I'm still saying by 2016, the government option that was taken out of Obamacare will be reintroduced to deal with the crisis of rising health care costs that nobody could have foreseen, not Jack Spierko in 2008 or anything. Um, and when, when, when we get the society onto that, and then we can't afford it, and the quality of care declines, we're in for a disaster. So, again, everybody looks at it and goes, oh, it's the, the healthcare industry is dead and it's going to destroy it and blah. Yeah, but it's cancer. Okay? It's, it's Huntington's disease. Maybe it's HIV. Right? It's not freaking sleeping sickness. It's not Ebola. It's not going to kill you in three days. It's going to slowly, it's Lou Gehrig's disease. It's Alzheimer's. It's going to suck the life out of you over time. But you're going to look really healthy for a while. Because since you got Huntington's, we're going to give you a great big disability check, bigger than you could have ever imagined. And then the patient's going to ignore the disease and take the check and go out and party. The medical industry is going to be another part of this boom. As more and more money gets pumped into the medical industry, which is already one of the largest industries in the world, you will see huge economic gains, lots of employment opportunity, lots of, lots of opportunity period in the medical industry. People getting jobs running CAT scanners that right now are probably working in freaking, uh, what do you call it, like car washes. And, and don't think it can't happen because, well, it can. You don't, you have to be pretty smart to interpret a CAT scan machine. You don't really have to be that smart to run one. If you run one now, I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying, come on, we all know if you can be trained to do something, then it's not hard to do. If you have to learn how to do something or if you have to adapt to things and there's always something different about the way you do something, it requires a lot more intelligence than here's procedure one, two, three, four, and five. This is what you do. You take the patient, you give them this, you put them in there, you stick them in there. When they complain, you tell them, please stay still. You push this button, you wait this long, you push that button. I mean, really, there's a lot of stuff in the medical industry. And as technology is advanced, it's becoming more and more the case that people will have, quote-unquote, good-paying jobs doing these types of things that seem very, very important. But there will be people getting CAT scans for the equivalent of a freaking stub toe. Not for a stub toe, but for the medical equivalent of one. As this happens, the U.S. is going to gain a large influx of international money. As we boom medically and uh, energy-wise, a lot of countries will be buying from us. We'll be moving into an exportation-style economy for uh, the first time in a very long time. It won't be the exportation of goods. It will be the exportation of technology. It will be the exportation of services. It will be the exportation of energy. And that will fuel a boom. 
And this is something a lot of you are going to be upset with me because you think I'm saying it's a good thing or I'm supporting it or I say we should do it or some of you will take the other stance and say, well, you're saying we shouldn't do it and we should. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. I, I, I don't try to push my beliefs about what should be. I try to tell you what's going to happen. Some sort of an amnesty will pass. Some sort of a immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform bill. Um, something will be done to convince even the people that are stalwart in the center about we need security on our borders, that it's happened. And now we've done what we said, and now it's time to normalize all of these people in this country who are here illegally, and that will actually bring a large influx of tax dollars because one these part of the way they're going to make the deal is they're going to make people pay a fine. This back-of-the-line shit isn't going to happen. They're going to say it likes the back-of-the-line, but it's not going to be. It's going to be a fast track. Or it's going to be back-of-the-line or pay a fine. And they'll prorate the fine. And they'll say, well, you've been here in this country for 10 years. Right? Okay. Well, it's reasonable to say that you're in, you know, you didn't pay income taxes. You must have made some money. Right? You were, you were gainful. I mean, you weren't just here doing nothing. I mean, this is for people that are productive members of our society. So you were working, right? Yes, I was working. Okay, great. Um, yeah, it's reasonable to assume that, you know, you should have paid at least $2,500 in taxes. You owe us grand to get to the front of the line. But we'll just prorate that. Just, you know, with your tax withholding, we'll just come up with a program where, you know, you pay a little bit extra every year for the next 20 years to pay off your debt. And we'll just accelerate that, and that's good for the country, and it normalizes you, and blah, 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 and... Learn English will become, well, we kind of encourage that. And I, I'll tell you what, the whole thing about learning English, I don't feel it's my right to tell anybody what language they should learn or speak. When you start saying, well, they need to learn English, you're, <laughs> there's no requirement that anybody learn any language. And, and you're reaching in, you're finding a way to be a bigot. Let me tell you what my belief is, though. I, that's fine. You don't want to learn English. I don't give a damn. But no person, no business, no government agency should be compelled to provide services to you in anything other than English. You don't want to learn English? You want to stick with Chinese or Spanish or Russian or whatever? I don't give a shit. But if nobody at a business or nobody at a government department you need to do business with speaks your language, it's up to you to go get somebody that does. And that would solve the problem. So this, you can get into all this debate about what's right and what should be done. I'm telling you what they're going to do. They're going to give a program, and it will have all kinds of holes in it and all kinds of things that will change the dynamics. And the reality is, once it passes, the issue will go away for 10 years or more, just like it did in 86. Everybody will just go, ah, well, that's over. It's, a, it's not worth discussing it because it's already done. And some, some people will try to keep drumming it up and pulling it back, but the reality is it's going to happen because it's the only thing that they can do to try to keep their paradigm floating is to normalize 25 million people or more and get them on the tax rolls. And here's the thing. People say, well, not all of them are going to be on the tax rolls. Some of them are going to be on the welfare rolls. They're already on the welfare rolls. They're already, most illegal immigrants that would qualify for assistance are already getting assistance. But the people that would not qualify for, many of them are not paying taxes. Here's another secret before you go bashing illegals. There's a shit ton of illegal immigrants right now that do pay taxes. 
that file a tax return and pay taxes because they're waiting for this and they don't they want to be they'll go all the they'll say well these people you can't say they didn't do it they'll go right to the front of the line but as we normalize this group of individuals within our country it will give them greater working rights and it will make them taxpayers at a higher level and as we let some of them bring their families to America because we can't break up a family even though you broke the law to get here it will offset somewhat the demographic bomb and and there'll be less money sent to Mexico because this is what people don't realize when they say well they'll bring all their family here well right now they're sending all their money to their family so I'm not saying this is good bad and different I'm not telling you what I even think we should do about this problem I will tell you what I think we should do about this problem. We should end all of this welfare and entitlement crap that's out there. We should put in very minimal safety nets to help people get through a hard time. Programs like that should last six months to a year maximum for anybody and everybody. And then let them come. Because you ain't getting it. And if you come here from another country, you shouldn't get any of that shit unless you've worked in the economy for at least five years. And you've earned your safety net to help you back up on your feet. If you're coming here as an immigrant, you should be coming here because you can contribute right away. That's what I think we should do. But I'm telling you what they're going to do. And I'm going to tell you how it's, I'm telling you how it's going to work out. So how does this then, if all this stuff's going to happen and the economy's going to boom, how does this go to the point where the cancer metastasizes and the patient goes critical? Well, the boom will create a steady inflation. Okay? So the, the Fed Reserve right now is doing everything it can to create inflation because inflation is growth. That's what people don't understand. Inflation is growth. Growth is inflation. We need a 2% or better growth per quarter, okay, in our economy for our economy to be considered successful, right? So they're killing themselves to create inflation. Well, as the boom takes place and all of this money they've shoved into every hole they can shove money into, some of it evaporates in the dust as it, as it pays off debt that was never toxic debt, but some of it really exists, all right? As that money begins to flow, that inflation starts to gain steam. The economy starts to heat up. And what does the Fed do when the economy begins to go a little bit too fast and we get in danger of a superheated economy? How do they control that? Well, they do it with interest rates. They raise rates. They do this on purpose. They lower rates. to, to That's putting the gas down. The lower you put the rates... So right now they got the pedal to the metal, but the car has got so much weight that it's carrying, even with a full tank of gas and the pedal down, it's like, uh, it's like it's going up a hill, right? Well, eventually you jettison enough of your bad debt and your weight and your baggage, the car gets a little more traction, the hill starts to level off, and the car starts speeding up. And the danger is if you keep the floor, the pedal to the floor of a car, especially if you come down the other side of a hill, With the accelerator floored, your car, next thing you know, is doing 180 miles an hour. You can't stop it and you wreck. That's a bust. So the way that they try to head off the bust cycle of the boom cycle, raise the interest rates. That's applying a little bit of braking action and coming off that accelerator. But the Federal Reserve now is holding so much debt. If they bring up the rates that they lend money out, It drives up the interest rates of all other lending instruments throughout the world. 
And as they have to turn their debt over, their 90-day debt, their one-year debt, their three-year debt, their five-year debt, that debt gets turned over at higher interest rates. And those interest rates begin to create a debt trap that accelerates that $800 billion worth of U.S. debt into much higher amounts that could become $2 trillion in debt instead of $800 billion. You see how that works? It's just by letting the interest rates rise. It's a trap. That squid-faced admiral from Star Wars, it's a trap. That's, that's, they've set their own trap. They can only let rates rise so much until the economy catches up with the debt trap. And it's, it can't. It's, it's, it's hit a runaway phase at this point. So all that cheap energy that fuels the boom as the inflation begins to heat up and heat up and heat up and heat up, and they can only do so much with interest rates, and they can only pull so much money back off the table, cheap energy isn't so cheap anymore. As inflation begins to eat away at the affordability, at least for us, we get into a point where our currency begins to devalue And we go into even more of an export economy. And everybody tells you it's wonderful. A weak dollar is good for the economy because it spurs exports for a while. The nations that have the greatest trade deficits, uh, the greatest trade uh, influxes, generally uh, have pretty poor quality of life, China. Right? You're watching the dynamic switches, these two superpowers, economic superpowers, switch their roles in the world. Now, Another thing that's happening that nobody wants to say because nobody wants to talk bad about people and, and be honest about how bad we've screwed up everything, not just money. The teacup and entitlement generations, right? The, the children that we can't have them ride a pair of roller skates without knee pads, shin pads, elbow pads, a helmet, and, and, and they have to be like somebody walk around behind them with a pad, right? The teacups, and the entitlements that started in the late 70s and have gone into terminal asshole velocity in the late 90s and early 2000s. The way parents treat their kids, the way kids are entitled, the way kids can't deal with any adversity. I just read a report that says the U.S. Army suicide rate is as is, is bad as it is. We don't even really get how bad it is because it's worse than it was during Vietnam or Korea or World War II. And as bad as these guys have it, they don't have it worse than they did in World War II on Iwo Jima. I, I, I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm just saying the rate's higher than it. You know what the final conclusion is to part of why this is? I think there's two reasons, but I think there's merit to this report. The number one reason, I think, are these antipsychotic drugs that are raising suicide rates. But I'll tell you, this report made sense to me. It said the other reason is because we have this teacup generation shit going on, Did a lot of these guys join the military and they've never had to deal with adversity in their life and they have less ability to handle it. And a surprising number of people committing suicide in military service today are not combat troops or even combat veterans. There's a surprising number of our military killing themselves today that have never seen combat. There's a surprising number of them that have never even been overseas. Again, I'm going to lay the... the uh, The psychotropic drugs as being part of the problem. But I do find some merit in this teacup entitlement generation. I think that people that serve in the military are generally less susceptible to it because you have to have a certain attitude in the first place of 
independence and, and self-reliance and, and a desire to, to be challenged to join the military. But it's no question, when you look at the numbers that I saw in this report, that our, that our suicide rates are higher today than they were during in 1943, 1944, during the height of fighting World War II. And I can't even imagine what some of the combat troops went through for days and months of a constant fighting. And maybe that's part of it too. I'm not saying that this is a, a complete indicator. I'm just saying there, there just seems to be some merit to it. But we know entitlement. And we know teacups. And we know they're real. Why is this important? They're becoming our main workforce. Okay, At a time when the U.S., is having to compete in a global economy like never before. The 20- to 35-year-old mainline workforce, the infantry of business, is reaching a point where the teacups and the entitlements are that workforce. Now, I'm not stupid. I'm not saying everybody between the age of 22 and, and 40 sucks. I'm 40. Okay? I grew up with a tough-ass attitude. I really did. And it was just expected in a small town in rural Pennsylvania. I wish I could tell you it's still that way there, but it's not. I wish I could tell you that they're not turning out teacups and entitlements in the coal region, but they are. And those places like that, most of those kids aren't getting jobs in the workforces that are going to compete at the global level. They're just not. They're doing whatever they can to survive a blue-collar lifestyle, and, 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 and less and less people are coming from those areas. The, the vast migration out of them into the cities was happening in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s when I was growing up. I left. Most of my friends with ambition that I went to school with don't live there anymore. They're all over the country. Some are all over the world, but they've left. So that percolator of toughness in these small rural communities is dying. More and more kids are growing up in the, in the cities. Parents are saying, I don't want my kid to have it as tough as I did. And these highly successful parents say, well, I don't want my kid to grow up the way. You're highly successful. What the hell's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you want your kid to grow up the way you did? Why wouldn't you want your kid... To have the determination and the attitude and the toughness that you do. Because Dr. Zeus told you it was wrong or Dr. Spock or whoever. And I'm telling you I saw this. I saw this. This kind of goes back to my comments yesterday about the Steelers and the toughness and playing hockey and football. When I got out of the Army, we moved to, I moved to Texas. And I met these guys. They were all in college. And these were some big guys. These guys were all bigger than me. And they used to play hockey in this apartment complex that I lived in. They'd set up a couple little goals, like street hockey with a ball and, and, and sticks, you know. And these guys are big college. I, mean, I can look at some of these kids and go, this guy looks like he plays like lacrosse or something like that, you know. I mean, or, or football or basketball. Big guys. And they would play sometimes with some girls who play in there. And, you, you know, you don't cross-check the girl, right? You don't cross-check the 120-pound girl, but, the, you know, there's this guy, and I'm like, back then I was like 190, and you got this guy, that looks like he's like 230, he's like 6'2", he's got the puck, and you go and you throw a shoulder, not a hard check, just a little shoulder check and move him out of the way. You take the puck and you, you flip it over, and everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you're like, what the hell? This is hockey. 
And eventually I just went, you know what? I'm sorry, guys. I didn't know that's how you guys played. And I was thinking, if you knew how we played when we were 16-year-olds with a cheap-ass pair of skates on a farm pond, it would blow your mind. And these big-ass corn-fed kids couldn't handle a guy 30% smaller than them giving them a shoulder check. What the hell? And these people are going to be the captains of the ship at this time and place in America. Now, I have faith in them. I have a belief that while some will completely fall apart, that when it comes down hard enough, that humans are humans, and just like I said, your intrinsic worth is no better than a person in the Philippines' intrinsic worth, it's also no better than one of these teacups or these entitlements. Okay, And when it comes down to it and there's no other choice and there's nobody there to pick them up anymore and no more nobody there to dust them off and tell them, it's okay, honey, you tried. Here's a trophy for trying. It's a tie. Everybody wins. When there's no more of that crap, it's, when there's no more, we don't keep score that most of them will find what's inside what's necessary and they'll stand up. But boy, are they going to fall on their ass before they get there. Boy, are they going to fall on their ass before they get to that point. And boy, they're going to be part of the sinking of the ship when you have people running companies that have always been told they're a winner even when they lost. And that is part of this. And I know some people are going to be mad at me, but it's the truth. And if we're going to deal with cancer, we need the truth about cancer. And it's part of the cancer. Boomer retirement. We've heard about, well, the boomers have started retiring in 2010 or 2011, and there's, you know, 19 million of them every, or whatever it is. I, I don't even know the numbers, but this is what people don't get. The boomer retirement has not hit critical mass yet. We're supposed to be kind of in the middle of it. For 19 years, this is so many every month will hit was the deal, right? But the reality is that most people in the boomer generation aren't retiring at 65. They're retiring at 70 to 72. Which means when you add the 70 to 72-year-old retirements that, by the way, draw larger amounts of Social Security and Medicare if they wait okay, that long, they get more money that way. So that's part of why they're hanging on longer. And they start to accumulate with the people that are going, screw this, I'm out at like freaking 63 because I think that Social Security is going to go bankrupt. As those two worlds collide, then you're going to hit the critical mass. The guys that are my dad's age that that are that you know, my dad was going to retire at 63. I said I'd believe it when I'd see it. But the people that actually make good on the threat and do it start to accumulate on top of the 70 to 72 year olds in the middle of the baby boom cycle is going to be a massive move from production to withdrawal. Okay, and whenever I talk again, there's so many things I have to clarify in this. They earned it. I know they earned it. Quit. Quit it. People like that, you gotta stop. You gotta stop talking about who's entitled to what and who earned what and start looking at the facts on the ground. The reality is the government screwed us all. They took that money. They've pissed it away for years and there's not enough money to pay the bill as it starts to add up to a trillion dollars for one light item in the budget. And some of those people aren't gonna get their money. And some people are only gonna get so much money and some people aren't gonna get jack diddly crap and that's probably you my fellow americans of my generation and younger we're probably not getting 
anything from Social Security. We're going to pay for it, we're going to fund it, and we're going to be the ones hung out to dry in the end. Because the ship will have long been underwater by the time you're old enough to get your money. If you're 30, forget about it. If your financial advisor and you're in your 30s is telling you to count 1% on Social Security, tell that person they're fired and find somebody else. If they're telling you to count on it for 1%, if they're saying, you know, it might be there, it'll be nice to have, but pretend it's not there, you got somebody that's at least halfway honest. They're probably still screwing your money up. They probably still tell you gold sucks, silver sucks. They're probably still telling you not to keep any of your money in cash. They're probably still telling you all tax. But at least they got that much in their brain. that They understand that that's probably not going to be there. Um, another thing that's going to happen is the real cost of Obamacare will be realized between 2016 and 2020. It's planned that way. The, it was written that way. It was designed that way. So that the ass clown that did it will be writing his memoirs when you're dealing with it. And the guy that takes over for him, whether a D or an R, is going to get the blame for how it demolishes the economy. And, and it, everybody's going to say it's not Obamacare. But Obamacare is a trillion-dollar disaster, a multi-trillion-dollar disaster. And the true costs and the true impact and the true taxes inside Obamacare really hit in 2016 and later. Do you know that there are so, so many people out there that are so stupid. I'm sorry, you're so stupid if this is you. They're in unions, and they got this, they are going to get theirs, and they're going to get a raise every year, and it's going to keep up with the cost of living, and they're going to go, and they're not giving up one bit of their pension, and they got the best freaking health care because they're entitled to it, and that's the way it's going to be, and they're going to make their employer, especially if they're a government employee, they're going to make them pay for it, and they're going to get it, and they're going to get that Cadillac insurance premium program and right now that, that insurance plan if you went out and bought it will probably cost you about twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a year and they go I don't care I'm entitled to it give it to me by the time we get to 2016 with current rates the cost of that same insurance program whether your employer's paying it or not whether the government's paying it or not is going to be valued in the free market if I had to go out and buy it at twenty twenty five thousand dollars And you guys that supported this crap, that said it was a good idea, that think it's wonderful, and everybody should have free health care, and blah, 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 and you don't care because you got your Cadillac program, you're going to get taxed on that twenty-five grand as income. You're going to pay taxes on your health insurance, folks. People with that kind of coverage, you're going to pay taxes on it like it's dollar-for-dollar dollar income. They're going to free market rate the cost of the program, and you're going to pay federal freaking Income taxes on it. Can anybody tell you that? Well, I know I did. I know a few people in the right-wing world that actually wanted to dig deep enough to not just complain about Obama, dug some of that stuff up and told us a little bit about it. But I, I don't think anybody really gets that yet. And I think most people that are going to pay taxes think, well, that's not me. Mine's not that good. Yeah, yours is probably that good. Well, a couple things are at play there. One... <laughs> A whole lot of money that was going into the economy is going to start going into the government, and a lot of people are not going to have their money. A shitload of people are going to say, well, screw this. I'd rather have the Obamacare, and, and they're going to cancel their employer-sponsored insurance, right? and they're going to run to the new government option that will be given to you as a solution. Right? I'll let that go. You should be able to figure that out for yourself where that goes from there. As all this is going on, as the U.S. debt 
starts to pass $22 trillion. As, as people start to actually go, there's no way these fools are ever going to make this work. As the inflation begins to rise, as the, as the next great depression ar arrives on the horizon, rising economies will be better able to compete for investor confidence. We'll say, well, yeah, the U.S. is cheap energy, but we know what to do with it. Investor money is already headed this way, but it will pour at this bifurcation point. It will pour into, into economies like Brazil. It will pour into economies like China, who will already be the number one economy in the world by, by, by 2020. They will be flat out. Math says so right now. That's what's going to happen. Okay? It will pour into Russia. It will pour into India. It will pour into economies we're not even thinking of right now. The, and as the Chinese become the largest economy in the world, Commodities will eventually become the backer of, US, of, of currency. As we look at a pending disaster from the United States and the world says, you know what, we got all our pieces in place now. It sucks. We really wish it didn't go down. We wish we even had another five years to play this game and get more things in place. But you know what, this ship is going down. Cut the ropes. And cutting the ropes will be changed, the dollar will lose its reserve status. There will be little crises all around the world that won't be put to waste by, because we're not the only government that knows how to do this. And eventually, currencies will move into a global basket. We'll say, well, the world reserve currency is made up of these four or six or eight currencies. It's more stable, it's better for everybody. And these currencies all have some sort of commodity backing. Gold will probably play a role in it, but I doubt it will be the only thing that will play a role in it because gold is too singular as, as, a, as a basis for a monetary system in a global economy. There will probably be some sort of a, a commodity basket valuation production capacity formula, um, which I think that our government should have gone to to back its own currency a long time ago. But when it's done at the global level, it's not whether it's good or bad, it's that We're in no position for it. Now, I'm going to give you the good after I give you the, the rest of the bad. Because when that happens on that day, this, this nation's bankrupt. The day that commodities back the currency, the nation with the biggest debt goes from being the wealthiest to the poorest nation overnight. You become in hock to everybody and you have to start making deals. I'm going to give you why I don't think it's over though. At that point... Our modern society is over. The way we've always done things is over. The U.S. telling the rest of the world what to do all the time is over. Uh, a complete unfair advantage in, in all trade is over. Um, the American way of life, of ease and simplicity, and always having whatever you wanted to push up a button is over. But America is not over. Because when that shift occurs, what did I tell you earlier about what makes American, America exceptional? The resources. And you move to, if you're in a commodity-based uh, system, you're actually, and I hate to use this term because it's been really destroyed by people that really just want to make socialism sound like a good idea. You're in a resources-based economy. But not the utopian resources-based economy where everybody just gets whatever they need. You're an economy based on the resources themselves. Those are what gives economic value to trade and transaction. It, you actually uncover the fallacy that you can just print money 
And you start to actually have to have a value-for-value exchange-based economy. When that happens, it's very possible, if this nation doesn't destroy itself, for us rapidly to become one of the most successful and wealthy nations under the sun yet again. Though I don't know that we'll ever be the world leader again. And maybe that's not all bad. There's plenty of nations that have never been the wealthiest nation in the world, but their citizens are very happy and their nations are relatively happy and, you know, they don't cause a lot of trouble and, you know, because they can't afford to. They can either afford to have a really great quality of life or they can afford to tell everybody else how to live. And and that's kind of where we're headed. And what happens when we get there? I don't know. Do we end up in a Rawlsian style, everybody shooting and killing each other thing? I don't think so. I think we get pockets of that, but I don't think that lasts very long. And I don't think you get into a point where nobody has any food. And I think you get in a place where food is very expensive. Food is in short supply. People have to make do with what they have. And those that are prepared are better set for the rebuilding process. But I think there's a rebuilding process at that point, And I want to be part of it. But I don't want you to get the wrong idea about that. I don't want you to think it's all sunshine and roses. I don't want you to think that no one dies. I don't want you to think that nobody's complete life is destroyed overnight. I don't want you to think that people don't go from being fairly well off to homeless in a day. I don't want you to think it's all great. I think it's going to be terrible. I wish it didn't have to happen. I'm just saying that, okay, once it happens and everybody sits around and looks and goes, well, it did happen, there there is no scenario that works where everybody kills each other and anybody survives. Most of us know this. Most people are inherently decent people that will do terrible things when they're pushed up against the wall. But if there's any option other than that, they'll avoid doing it. And then there's the true scum. There are the 10% of vicious, malicious scum that would kill you for a cupcake. There are people like that. And they would eat the cupcake. They would drop the the cupcake little paper on your head where the blood soaks into it and walk away and never think about you again. And in a societal breakdown... Those people become free to be what they really are. They're going to be extremely dangerous. And there's about 50% of the people of the remaining 90%, so half to 45% of the population, have no idea how to deal with those people. They're complete idiots when it comes to dealing with violence. Oh, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do it. And a lot of those people are going to get hurt and or dead until they snap to, hey, wait, the rules have changed. But I'd say there's about 30 to 40% We know exactly how to deal with people like that. We know precisely how to deal with people like that. You put them into a world of hurt or into a hole in the ground really, really fast. And the thing about most of these scums, some of the scum are brazen, brave scum. They're out being scum right now. They're the smarter scum, by and large, because they get away with it. But most of the scum are suppressed out of fear. And as soon as it becomes more likely to get your ass capped for harming others than it does to get arrested today, they'll go right back to being hidden scum. And they'll be terrified. Because I'll tell you what, justice in that society will be much swifter and much more vicious than it is today. And you you, you could say it won't happen, but I want to ask how many of you out there In that scenario, once you got to the point where people started just shooting people for food, killing neighbors, burning down houses, rioting, 
How many of you would really hesitate when they came to your neighborhood to do what you had to do to put things back to some level of decency? And most of you would say, I would hesitate for a second. And some of you say, well, I'd hesitate for a second or two and I'd feel bad about it. But in the end, <laughs> you know, and does that go into vigilantism? And all? Yeah, it does. It does. But I think what happens is societies begin to then say, we got to control this. And why? Because we always have. In the end, we've always had. The most vicious among us, if they have any kind of order and structure to society, have had some level of rules. And it will coalesce back. And what does it look like on the other side? I don't know. It could be the greatest shift toward advancement the world has ever seen, or it could be a shift back toward the Dark Ages for decades before it resurrects. I don't know. But I do know there will be something on the other side. I do know that I'll be going through this uh, in my lifetime. I have no doubt that this cancer is terminal on the economy in enough time that unless something weird happens, I'll see, if, if I reach my expected life expectancy, let's put it that way, I'll see it. And I'll see the other side. Be, I don't know that I'll see the complete evolution of the other side, but I'll see the other side. And to me, that's actually very encouraging. And does this nation have 50 states in it on the other side? Or does it have five regions? And the answer is I don't know. Does this nation become the most totalitarian state on the other side? Or more liberated than it is today? I don't know. I know what I'm going to fight for. I know what I'm going to work for. I know what I'm going to try to accomplish. And I know the lines that I will not allow to be crossed where I live. Or I know the lines that I will not allow to be crossed with my fellow citizens, where I will stand up and defend them. I know where those lines are. I'm not suggesting that you have the same lines that I do. I'm suggesting that you gut check yourself now and figure out where they are and build resiliency into your life based on those lines, based on those choices, and based on the fact that this cannot continue forever. Mathemat I don't care who tells you that it can continue forever. It can't. It's impossible. It simply is mathematically impossible. And I'm going to wrap up here. I went a little bit longer than I planned on today, and I got to get off because I got an interview here in uh, about 23 minutes that I got to get ready for. It. Uh, and I hope I didn't scare you today. I, I actually hope I encouraged you. But I do hope you understand the diagnosis. Call it cancer. Call it Hunting's, Hunting's disease. Uh, call it anything that you want that you need to get an understanding of it. But when you look at the financial reality of our future, eventually this system has to stop and a reset button has to be set in. And when it does, a lot of people are going to get hurt. Be prepared for that. But be prepared to capitalize on the opportunities between then and now. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. 